The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. We have Impact Bible Clubs every year at TBC, and praise God this year, we saw the gospel shared with hundreds of students, saw some come to know Christ, saw our students train and do great work and impact the lives of children throughout our community. And maybe the most amazing stat is five guys served 665 snow cones in two hours <laughs> at our carnival. Because this, this impact is such a great church-wide effort, and our our junior high and high school students are on the front lines of that effort, but it takes people hosting in their homes. It takes people bringing food to those homes. It takes people driving students, preparing food up here, praying for students. If, if you are involved in serving an impact in any way, would you just stand right now? Yeah. We are... We're grateful to you. We say thank you and we say praise God. He is doing great things in our midst and we're grateful for that. I want to remind you, as I did last week coming up, we'll have some connecting environments. Some have started. We've got singles over 40. We've got uh, Bob Weber teaching a, a Bible trek class. Charlie Stoner teaching the Exchange Life class. We've got the Duckworths working with young couples and then Brandon and Sarah Brewer starting class for young adults, married and single coming up in a couple of weeks. And these environments, just like this environment, they're great places to connect with people and they're beginning of connection. They're not the end of it. We want to be connecting you into small groups where you can be trained, where you can grow in community, where you can be equipped in Christ for maturity and ministry. And we want to be about ministry just as we have, um, just as we've seen the Lord work through our students. We've got great opportunities for global outreach, local outreach. Our global outreach pastor, Brandon, asked me to share on the hub of our website, there's a form you can fill out if you're interested in helping missionaries. We have missionaries that come through for sometimes two days, sometimes two months, sometimes six months, sometimes for a year. And they need things like a place to stay, a car to drive. Um, they need... Um, Sometimes stuff for their kids. Sometimes they need childcare. Sometimes they need things like a lunchbox for a road trip or a pool to swim in or even garage space for them to store things. All kinds of opportunities. If you're interested in serving those at-home missionaries in any way, you can go to the hub, fill out a form there, letting Brandon and our missions team know that you're interested in helping. And then for local outreach, in case you guys can't see, there's a slide up here. That was a joke, right? Uh, so, uh, so Safe Place Summer Clamp is something that we are doing with TISD Tuesdays and Thursdays, 10 to 12 p.m. at Clarence Martin Gym. So it's for all school-age kids in our community. You can serve in a variety of ways there. There's more info on the hub. But just like we've done local outreach through Impact, we can do it through these clubs. Well, we are diving in, continuing our series in Mark, and we're in Mark chapter 6, the last half of Mark chapter 6, and you might want to mark John 6 as well, and we'll look at Mark 6 that tells of this account and a parallel story that John tells that gives us a little more detail as we dive in. You know, there are some questions in life that are really clear and easy answers to, and others, the answer's maybe not as clear. Sometimes there's a a yes or no that's very obvious and sometimes 
it's a bit more am- ambiguous. Sometimes it's a both-and answer. One of the questions in life that's not a both-and answer is this. It's a really deep one. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? And I, I'd like to find out who knows the answer this morning. So if you're a chicken person, would you just raise your hand? The chicken came first, okay? If you're an egg person, you say the egg came first, would you raise your hand? And if you'd say, this is a silly question, I don't care, would you raise your hand? <laughs> quite, quite a few of those as well. It's not a silly question. There is a clear answer, and I want to give it to you, and you don't have to care, but you can at least know, right? The answer is the chicken. So if you're an egg person, I'm really sorry, you're wrong, and I'm going to tell you we have the answer clearly in Scripture. He made the birds of the air, not the eggs in the nest, right? The chicken <laughs> came first. That's easy. There are other questions, though. It's a little more difficult. Some people are actually amazed by that, right? Should we do local outreach or should we do global outreach? Should we care for the poor or should we do evangelism? Should we try to stay healthy by doing exercise or avoiding gluttony? Should we parent with discipline or should we parent with grace? And the answer to all those questions is yes. We should do both. Well, in today's text, scholars kind of go back and forth about what is happening here. What does Mark want us to know? And ultimately, what does God want us to know from the last half of Mark chapter 6? And some scholars would say, listen, Jesus is setting himself up by evoking lots of things from the Old Testament and bringing up these things in Israel's story that they hear and they go, oh, he's alluding to this in the same way that if you and I hear four score and seven years ago, we would think about Abraham Lincoln's famous address, but we might not think about them as Americans reading this text. He's just saying that Jesus is the center of the story. And some would go so far to say, in fact, that's really all Mark's doing, these miracles that are supposed miracles are really just the miracle that all these people shared. He's overturning the value system. He's flipping things on their head. But but was there a miraculous feeding of 5,000 in the way we, we would think of miracles? Some scholars would say no. Other scholars would say no, these, these evocations of the Old Testament, you're just reading that into the text. It's really not there. He's just doing miracles. And this is really so that people in the 21st century in Temple, Texas can know and understand that Jesus offers individual salvation for them. It has nothing to do with Israel's story. But I, I want to tell you, actually, the answer is yes. Is this about Jesus being the center of Israel's history, overturning their value system? Or is this just Jesus showing himself to be Lord of all creation? Well, the answer, the answer is yes. He's doing both. And so let's read and see him do both. Mark 6, verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place. And we're going to see that word desolate place three times in the first seven verses. We might want to take note. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. They're reporting to Jesus. They've healed the sick. They've cast out demons. They've preached repentance, and people are repenting, and people notice them. They notice that they've been with Jesus, and they notice they have power from Jesus. So they're just constantly have people coming with needs. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns. They got there ahead of them 
And when, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, Jesus, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples said to him, this is a desolate place and the hour is late. Let's send them into the countryside and villages so they can buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it's powerful to impact the deepest parts of who we are, to transform our very lives, to transform our hearts, to shape us into the people you've created us to be. So we pray your Holy Spirit would do that good work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. What we're going to see today is that Jesus is the king who's good, Jesus is the king of glory, and Jesus is the king who's gracious. And we're going to see it over and over and over in the book of Mark. We'll see it really clearly today. He is the king who's good. It starts with the apostles and it starts with rest. This is the only time Mark uses the word the apostles. An apostle just means sent ones. And these are his apostles, the original 12 that he's sent out. Some people ask this question, are there apostles today? Well, that depends on what you mean, right? Are there apostles today? Are there people with this gift that they had who saw Jesus's eyes and wrote scripture, this special apostolic gift given to the 12 and to the apostle Paul? And the answer to that is no. Have a gift that's unique for this time, for this moment. Are there apostolic style ministries, types of ministries where people go and serve on the frontier where Christianity doesn't exist and it's just starting to exist and they help churches to be planted and develop and grow and launch them on their way and encourage them as they go? Yes, we've got people we send out that have ministries like that. Bill and Christy Bowers in the Middle East, Byron and Rosemary Baird as they serve new church plants in Indonesia and others, but are there big A apostles no longer? These apostles need rest. John chapter six, verses three and four would tell us the Passover is near. People are kind of beginning to get ready to go to the feast. And so Jesus says, come away to a desolate place. Come to the wilderness and rest a while. This is Israel language. They were waiting for a moment when they would go to the wilderness and rest with a king. But people see them. They see them as having this power from Jesus and then Jesus has compassion on them. We're told he has compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were like sheep without a shepherd. They're over and over and over in the Old Testament. There are several times where we hear he will shepherd the flock of God. We don't want them to be with like sheep without a shepherd. There's this moment in the life of Moses. He's getting older. Joshua which means God saves, same root as Yeshua, where we get Jesus from, God of salvation. Joshua is going to take over as the leader and Moses is worried that the people will be like sheep without a shepherd. So he prays to the Lord. Numbers 27, 15, Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in. Why? That the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit and lay your hand on him. There was a person to lead God's people and Jesus sees the people. He has compassion because they're like sheep without a shepherd. 
Herod, who we read about last week, is not a good shepherd to the people. And Jesus has compassion on them. Jesus has compassion on them. He looks at this people. They're struggling in sin. They're tired. Some of them need healing. They all need to hear the truth. And he has compassion. Kind of three ways, I think, in culture, we can tend to fail to have compassion. One is we look at people in a struggle and we look with condescension. We look with judgment only and we don't care for them. We only see their sin. We don't see the brokenness that goes along with it. We don't see the pain they've walked through and we choose not to show compassion. If our lives have been changed, they've been changed by the compassion of God. So we ought to be compassionate. Another way, though, kind of an opposite way that we sometimes fail to have compassion on people like sheep without a shepherd. Is it a failure of understanding that people need a shepherd? Oh, no, no. They're just being their authentic self. You just let them be them. That's who they are. Never speak any truth about Jesus or that there is a shepherd or boundaries that are good and healthy or that God has a different way. It's not compassionate to not tell the truth to people. And then a third way I think that we fail to show compassion is just that we don't understand that sometimes, sometimes showing compassion to people, sometimes ministering to people in the power of God's spirit when you're tired, you're exhausted, you don't want to is one of the most life-giving actions you'll ever take. The disciples don't understand that either. Verse 35, when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Remember Jesus, I don't know if you forgot, we were gonna go to a desolate place and rest. All these people are here. Could you just send them away? He has compassion. They're like sheep without a shepherd. The disciples don't, they're tired. Like many modern men, when the disciples say, send them away to get something to eat, they want quick relief, release from what they see as problems. Instead, Jesus would have them do the hard work of resting in and enjoying God in the midst of serving others. He would perhaps help them to see that life's interruptions are God's invitations and there's rest right there in the middle. But there's a conundrum. He says, you give them something to eat. And they say, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he says. Go and see. And they come back and they say, we've got five loaves and two fish. We've got five loaves and two fish. We can't feed all these people. This is where people go. Did a miracle happen or was just the miracle that, that they shared? Was it five loaves and two fish? Wink, wink, right? This is a mola mola fish. Maybe they caught a couple of these and gave them to the people. Or did a miracle occur? I, I did the math on this to try to figure it out. Now, I'll, I'll confess to you, I did the math slightly wrong and shared with the first hour, and there are some real math snobs at TBC, right? <laughs> Your numbers are slightly off by thousands, and they just flip out, okay? So I went to the sound booth, got my abacus, and did the math right. 200 denarius, 200 days wages, how much is that? So I did the average salary of a person in America, and then I thought, well, there would be smaller portions, so let's do Happy Meals, but then Jesus would never serve Happy Meals. He'd serve Chick-fil-A Kids Meals. So I looked it up, and this is basically the money that they would be gathering, if you translated it to today, would be 13,000 Chick-fil-A Kids Meals 
which is about what we buy in a year at my house, right? It's a lot. No, this is something amazing happened. Jesus is taking what they have and he is multiplying it. And there's something for us to hear in that for us today. But first, we've got to understand, Mark's told us about Herod's feast where the leading men of Galilee and the nobles are there. And now these people are going to have a feast and Herod is a shell of a king. He's an awful shepherd and Jesus is the true and right king. He's a good shepherd. Herod's feast is a celebration of debauchery. Jesus' feast is a symbol of deliverance. Herod's feast is a celebration of evil. Jesus' feast is a symbol of eternal life. Herod's feast is a celebration of worldliness. Jesus' feast is going to have signs and wonders that say he is at the center of Israel's story and he is God. Well, what shall we do? Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? It's like when Moses asks, God, how am I going to find me to feed all these people when Israel's in the wilderness? What are you going to do, God? How will you provide? And Jesus says, set them down on the green grass. Set them down on the green grass. Divide them into groups of hundreds into fifties. This is just like what Moses did to the camp in the wilderness. He broke them up into sections. But then there, there's something further about this. Israel was looking for a feast like this. There, there's this place called Qumran. It's where John the Baptist probably would have lived. It's where the Essenes were. They kept ancient texts. There have been discoveries in the caves of Qumran of all these texts of Israeli or of Jewish writings. There are Old Testament texts. There are rabbinical writings. And some of the texts at Qumran use these exact subdivisions of hundreds and fifties to describe Israel assembled in the wilderness for a feast with their true Messiah. See, what's, what's happening is the new exodus is happening. It's really clear in Matthew, but it's also clear here in Mark. He's portraying Jesus as this eschatological savior who's going to come. He's the one Israel's been anticipating. The second and better Moses, is, he's going to take this leaderless people who are like sheep without a shepherd and remind them that they are the people of God. This text is implicit that the kingdom of God was functioning through Jesus. It, it's emphatic that miracles are happening. And taking the loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. He prayed to the Father and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. And of course, their, their families would have been with them as well. So what in the world is happening here? There's so much to see. See, they had these 12 baskets. There was enough for them after they had joined God in his work. There was enough left over after they had given all they had. Twelve baskets. These baskets are like a lunch pail. We'll read a story in a couple of weeks about Jesus feeding 4,000 among the Gentiles and there are seven big baskets that will be gathered. These baskets, the word used, it's like a uh, every Jewish man would carry with him every day when he went out to work and it would have his lunch and maybe some small odds and ends. And there's been a feast in the wilderness. 
and God has provided enough. Well, Mark, if you will, John chapter six, because we're going to look over there just like we looked last week. Mark is a man of action. Mark tells us the story. Some of the other gospel writers tell us the details, so we're going to need to look in John chapter six as well, but listen to these words about this feast Isaiah spoke 700 years before Jesus came. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, aged wine, well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that's cast over all the peoples, the veil that's spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on this day, behold, this is our God whom we've waited for, that he might save us. This is the Lord we waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So they're having this feast. And John 6 is just this parallel account of this feast. And what does Jesus tell the people in the feast? See, Jesus tells the people in John 6, 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father has set his seal. So in Isaiah, they're waiting for this feast. He says, the father has set his seal on me. I'm going to give you this bread. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And indeed, and, and indeed they did eat manna from heaven. Here they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces in the, in the fish. When Exodus 16, there were people with big families, people with small families, people with five kids like me, people with no kids like some of you, people with three kids, people with 10 kids. But when they measured with an omer, they gathered this manna and whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. See, God was providing bread. And so Jesus says, now I'm that bread. He goes on in John 6, 32. Truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He goes on, verse 47 of John 6. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread. I came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. I'll offer salvation to all who will come. This good shepherd provides so his people lack nothing. And here the disciples... Here are the disciples in Mark 6, 43, gathering up their baskets and there's enough. There's enough. And I I think in addition to this reality that Jesus is the bread of life, there's also this truth that when you give your time, your talents, and your treasure to God for his purposes, you're, you're going to have enough. 
He's going to take care of you. It's this call to radical generosity that Mark's readers would have seen to give your time, your talents, and your treasure because in the first century, their values were off, their measurements were miscalculated, and their treasure was misplaced, just like ours sometimes are. So we give our time, our talents, and our treasure, which isn't a lot, five loaves and two fish. And Jesus multiplies it for the life of the world because he's the true bread. He's the good shepherd. He's the good king. The disciples aren't going to understand this, but it's the truth. He's not just the king who's good, though. He's the king of glory. Mark, this man of action, tells us about Jesus feeding the 5,000. And he says immediately, verse 45 of Mark 6, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he'd taken leave of them, after he left them, he went up on a mountain to pray. Jesus steps away to be with the Father. Can I just tell you, as I, as I read that, I, I think about this in, in my life. You might think about it in your life one of the most confounding things in all the world is the neglect of the people of God to go to the Father in prayer. Here's God who made the world that would call us his children, chose us, redeemed us, adopted us as his children, says, come to me when you're weary and we neglect to do so. Jesus is our savior. He's also our example. He goes to the Father to pray. He goes to the Father to pray, and he's praying for a long time. The disciples get in the boat. They're having a hard time making their way. The wind is getting strong. They can't move forward. It's the fourth watch of the night. It's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. It's late. Jesus sees what's happening, and so he goes to them. Verse 48, he saw them that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and he meant to pass them by. Now that just sounds kind of like a throwaway line. He, he meant to pass them by, but it's not there. The, the participle he meant or he intended, it's explicative. It's explain, it explains why he's walking on the water. He meant to pass them by so they could see him. They could see his glory. They could trust and believe. Now, there are lots of Old Testament allusions here. We're going to look at, at three. He intended to pass them by. Two of them, when I saw it, I thought, oh, yeah, that makes sense. The other, honestly, I had never noticed before, and I was just blown away. I was just amazed. Exodus 33, Moses is up on the mountain. He's meeting with the Lord. And in Exodus 33, verse 19, he says, God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Jesus meant to pass them by. There's another moment. Elijah has had this great moment where he stood before the prophets of Baal. They've cried out to Baal. Their God hasn't shown up in power. 
But Elijah, the God of Israel, as he cries out, shows up, consumes his sacrifice. Then Elijah goes away. He's hidden in a rock and God tells him to go up on the mountain. And he says, go out, stand on the mountain and behold, the Lord passed by. But then there's one in Job that's just absolutely my favorite. Now, I, I got to confess to you, when I was a new believer, I was afraid to read the book of Job. It was it was. It was kind of like a superstition. Well, the book of Job, that's about suffering. If I read it, something bad will happen to me. So I'm not, I'm not going to read it, which is a really silly thing to do. Because it's this rich and beautiful book that tells us about a God who is with us in the midst of our suffering. When Job 9, there's this description of God. And Israel would have heard this over and over and over in their wisdom literature. They would have heard about the God who's coming to do this in Job a couple of verses in Job 9, 8, God is the one who stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. And here's Jesus trampling the waves of the sea. Verse 9, 9, who made the bear and Orion and the Pleiades, the chamber of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Then in verse 11, behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. And here's Jesus. He intended to pass him by and they see him, but they do not perceive him. Mark tells us they think it's a ghost. They think it's a ghost. They cried out. They were all terrified. There's this common superstition that these night spirits would come in the chaos of the sea and attack. And they think that's what's happening. But that's not What's happening? God is there walking on the sea, passing by so they can see his glory. And then Jesus says the most beautiful thing. He says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. The I there, take heart. It is I, do not be afraid. It's sandwiched between these two beautiful statements. Take heart, do not be afraid. And it's emphatic. He has just been telling them, I am the bread of life. The I am, it is I. When I'm here, you can take heart. You don't need to be afraid. They should have seen it coming, but verse 52 says they didn't understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. He says, take heart, it's I, do not be afraid, but they didn't get it. And I don't understand this, they should have known it. It's like an, an action movie or, or my favorite Christmas movie when I was growing up, really famous Christmas movie called Die Hard, you might have heard of it. And the hero of Die Hard is Bruce Willis, John McClane's a character. Well, if you're watching a Die Hard movie and Bruce Willis is standing against a wall and a minor key starts playing in the background, I wonder what's going to happen. Is a villain about to show up? I don't know. I'm not sure. What could it be? And then in this blockbuster action adventure American movie, will the hero win in the end? I don't know. Is John McClane going to survive? So suspenseful. Lest I just pick on men, it's also kind of like a Hallmark movie, right? There's a baker. She makes all of her income baking things around Christmas time. The mayor wants to shut her business down. She gets the call to go see the mayor. 
Do you think he's ugly or good looking? He's good looking and he's compassionate. They talk it out. She gets to keep her Christmas business. The name of the movie is he's baking a list and checking it twice. You know what's happening, right? I, I love Hallmark movies. Do not email me, okay? You know what's going to happen, right? That's why we watch them because we know what's going to happen. They, they should have remembered. These men should have remembered the Hebrew word for male is zakar. It means one who remembers. They were created to remember the faithfulness of their God and they didn't. In the darkness and chaos of their surroundings, these, these followers of Jesus, they're disturbed by their circumstances and they're deceived by their eyes. Jesus says, take heart, don't be afraid. It's, it's me, I'm here. I wonder if in the chaos and darkness of our world, sometimes we get disturbed by our circumstances, we get deceived by our eyes. And he got into the boat with them. Over and over and over, we see God entering humanity's situation when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. It's God who comes down and makes an appropriate covering for them. God comes down and calls Abram to go to a place he doesn't know and he is with him. God is with Moses and the children of Israel in the wilderness. He's with them in Egypt. See, when David stands on that hill and looks across at a giant he just can't defeat, God shows up. And when Daniel's in the lion's den and the Hebrew children just won't bow, God is with them in the fiery furnace. And, and right here in this storm and in this boat, God is here with the disciples and for you and me today. He says, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. See, what happens in this moment is the word of God, Jesus, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And the presence of God, Jesus, bring calm and comfort to his people. And the word of the God and the spirit of God do the same thing for us. Well, what are, what are you afraid of? And why do you fear it? Are you, are you afraid of your kids getting hurt? I mean, we, we all love our kids. Are you, are you afraid of losing your job? Got, got to have money, right? And we, we tend to find a little bit of security and identity. Are you afraid of rejection and criticism? I mean, who doesn't want approval? Maybe you're afraid of smaller things like a leak in the roof or leaving the oven on. All kinds of things that might paralyze you in fear, and he says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. See, like the disciples, we, we tend to want our recipe to fix our broken story, and instead, God just enters into our broken story and says, take heart, it's I, do not be afraid. But they don't understand. It's not that they're their problem of understanding is intellectual. They understand the facts. They watch Jesus bless this bread and these fish and then multiply, right? They, they saw him walking, intending to pass them by. He got into the boat. It was him. It's spiritual struggle they have. They shouldn't have been afraid because of what they'd seen and heard. 
Well, how do you not be afraid in an age of fear? You know, I, I talked to our students this week, one of the impact devotions I got the privilege of doing, and I, I intended to talk to them about the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run into it and they're safe. But I was distracted by John 6 as I was studying for both these things at the same time. And I, I felt like maybe the answer to some questions that go with that, the name of the Lord is a strong tower, the righteous run into it and they are safe. I just started asking, well, how, how strong, right? And how safe? How safe a tower and how long are we safe? And so John 6, again, this parallel passage of the bread in verse 35, he says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me and you do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me. How strong a tower is the name of the Lord when we run to him? Well, it's God's tower. It's really strong right? It's the name of the Lord. There's nothing stronger. How, how safe all the father gives to me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out really safe. I've come not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will who sent of him who sent me. I shall lose nothing of all he has given me, but I'll raise it up on the last day. How long? This is the will of my Father. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I'll raise Him up on the last day. When He says, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. There's one we can run to that is strong and safe forever. See, Jesus is showing, and Mark's telling us, He's the King of glory, and the King will not be denied. The disciples should have known because of what they had seen and heard. They should have been bold because of what they had seen and heard. And one day they, they would be. They've seen and heard this and they don't understand. Just a bit later, Acts chapter 4 tells a story. In Acts 3, Peter and John, two of Jesus' disciples, they go to the temple and there's a guy there that asks for money and they say, we don't have any money. He, but his legs don't work. And they say, we don't have any money, but what we do have we give to you. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And he gets up and starts walking. And you'd think everyone would be really excited about that, and a lot of people are, but the Jewish leaders are upset, and they tell John and Peter, you need to be quiet, stop talking about Jesus. And they, tell, they, they basically say, you're, you're upset because this man can rise up and walk? That happened in the name of Jesus. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven whereby people may be saved. It's, it's only through Jesus. And and so the leaders beat them and tell them to be quiet. And, and they just say, listen, you decide whether we ought to please God or men, but we can't help talking about what we've seen and heard. See here, the disciples don't understand what they've seen and heard, but there comes a day when they do and they can't help but talk about it. He's the king who's good. He's the king of glory. And with my last 45 minutes, we're gonna talk about how he's the gracious king. Well, Mark 6 ends this way and it ends beautifully. They crossed over and they came to land at Gennesaret and they moored to the shore and they, they hit the beach between Capernaum and Tiberias. It's this densely populated place. The people have heard of the spreading fame of the Messiah. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. They 
and they ran about the whole region, and they began to bring sick people to him on their beds wherever they heard he was and wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside. They put the sick in the marketplaces. They implored him that he might touch, or that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were well. They were made whole. They were made new. He's gracious. This touch of faith. See, there's continuing opposition and it's growing and growing and growing and people are questioning, is this Messiah? Though they questioned his words, they couldn't deny his works. The deliverer has come. Matthew says it over and over and over. He's a second and better Moses, but Mark says it too. Moses saw God give bread from heaven. Jesus says, I am the bread from heaven. Moses parted the waters. Jesus trampled on the sea and passed them by. And so as the bread, as the bread, Jesus meets our need for forgiveness, for eternal life. His body crucified satisfies our deepest need. His blood washes our sins away. As the one who tramples on the sea and calms the storm, Jesus takes away our fear of death because he is with us in our storms and he will see us through them. So we can trust Jesus as the Messiah, the center, the pinnacle, the apex of Israel's story, and we can trust him as the Lord of all creation who lived and died and rose from the dead to give life to all who believe. Well, God, we're thankful for the good and gracious king that we see in all his glory. You gotta pray for people in this room who haven't embraced and received the life that is in Jesus that you might stir and move in their hearts by your Holy Spirit to see Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead as Savior and King. The one who might say to them in the midst of their sin and brokenness, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid, come to me. Others of us wrestling in the darkness of our circumstance, the difficulty of our days, Lord. You'd speak to us right now that we can trust you, we can walk to you, with you, we can follow you, we can take heart. It's you. You're right in the boat with us. Let your word and your spirit bring us comfort and let, us make, let it make us into a bold sort of people who just can't help but speak about this Jesus of whom we've seen and heard. We pray in his name, amen.